Hello, I'm Rob McDonald, the Head of Chemicals, Polymers and Fibres at PCI Wood Mackenzie. On the 7th and 8th of March of this year, we held the 11th European Nylon Symposium in Frankfurt, where over the, ca- over the course of two days with 160 guests, we talked about raw materials, uh, the development of nylon applications and the state of the nylon industry. It's been traditional at this event that, that I spend um, the last 10 minutes or so wrapping up everything which I've heard uh, and basically share my personal notes from the event. Um, I'd like to now take that opportunity to do the same for clients who couldn't be at the event. The, the point of the event is to discuss all aspects of the nylon industry and the presentations flow as per the materials through the nylon chain. So we start with raw materials when we move to nylon intermediates and polymers and then talk about all of the various different applications. So the first paper was from Alex Lidback, uh, Vice President at Wood Mackenzie. He was talking about oil and benzene. Um, nylon 6 is based almost entirely on benzene in terms of its raw materials, and that's highly related to oil. Uh, Alex's view was that, that oil prices would be weaker for longer, uh, but however, th- there are uh, reasons to believe that the future sources of oil will be more expensive than the ones which we currently have, and therefore over time the price of oil must rise. His comparison was saying it was sort of like a juggernaut which was turning, but only very slowly. My personal take on that was that that oil prices are essentially unsustainably low at present, and we should probably be preparing for um, for more upward rather than downward movement. In the case of benzene, it was more complex. Benzene is a, a co-product byproduct from many different processes, and he highlighted the fact that China is becoming a much more significant source of demand, um, which which leads to the issue of, of uh, how predictable is that demand given uh, the inherent volatility of the Chinese economy. He also highlighted that India is expected to be a major source of supply in future. And similarly, you know, if the Indian economy does better than we expect, will that supply actually ever materialise? That left me with a feeling around benzene that actually prices would be uh, continue to be very volatile. Alex forecast um, $800 a tonne for the rest of 2017. My personal suspicion is that it's more likely to be closer to 1000 The next paper was from Patrick Kirby, one of our directors at Wood Mackenzie based in London. He was talking about uh, propylene and butadiene, which are two olefin materials used in the nylon 6.6 industry. Patrick identified that the propylene gap, which is now emerging between um, material which had been produced from uh, traditional sources, particularly crackers, um, and the demand for propylene, mainly in the form of polypropylene, was now being filled by propane dehydrogenation plants, and people were being able to make propylene on purpose as opposed to making it as a co-product from a cracker. And that because you're able to make propylene from propane, the uh, the market will essentially always remain supplied, and that therefore propylene values over time should be coming uh, down. The counter was true of butadiene, which competes with propylene in the nylon 6.6 raw material area, where uh, again it's made as a kind of co-product, byproduct from other processes. There is no way to make it on purpose economically. And that therefore, as demand continues to climb from elastomeric products, for example, tires, that the the possibility of, of tightness around the supply-demand balance in butadiene was much higher, and therefore butadiene price trend was probably upward, where propylene's 
trend was probably lower. The third paper was from uh, Marina Simonova from Ferticon, our partners who look after the inorganic area and um, specifically ammonia and ammonium sulfate, which are uh, ammonia used as a raw material nylon 6 and 6.6 and ammonium sulfate being a major byproduct from the nylon 6 capo industry. Essentially, her, her view around ammonia was that it had been too low for too long and that prices would have to move up for the industry to become something more sustainable. Uh, in the case of ammonium sulfate, she thought that uh, prices were liable to be flat to even lower, mainly because ammonium sulfate competes with urea and there's been a, a recent wave of investment into urea, which is suppressing margins there. That's a bad news for the capital now in six industry because you're buying ammonia where prices are expected to go up and you're selling ammonium sulfate where prices are expected to be flat and, and down. What was also interesting about uh, Marina's conversation, she, she listed major ammonia exporters as Trinidad, uh, Russia and Indonesia and also identified major ammonium sulfate importers as Brazil, Vietnam, Malaysia and Indonesia. Um, just flagging in my mind that when the Nylon 6 capro industry is finally ready for more investment, that uh, Indonesia having both raw materials and being a natural market for ammonium sulfate looks potentially like an an interesting place to invest. The fourth paper was from myself, uh, talking about the nylon intermediates um, and really trying to address the question of whether the recent increase in nylon intermediates prices, particularly polymers and chemicals, has been justified or not. Uh, my argument was that in the case of nylon 6.6, it is justified. There was tightness in uh, adipic acid in all regions except China. And there is a kind of global tightness emerging now in adiponitrile and HMD. Therefore, the 6.6 the chain is becoming increasingly constrained and it's quite reasonable and logical that prices move up. Uh, in the case of nylon 6, it's much less justified because fundamentally the market is still um, way uh, oversupplied. There's a massive excess of capacity in most regions. However, it seems to be through strength of will from some of the leading producers that they're just not prepared to accept a business which doesn't make any money anymore. Um, so although market fundamentals don't really support higher prices, the behaviour which is emerging does. And, uh, and my conclusion was that yes, nylon prices at the polymer and chemical level would be moving up because current levels are absolutely unsustainable. The fifth paper on day one of the event was from Will Chapman, director of fibres, again at Wood Mackenzie. He talked about nylon industrial filament and also about carpet filament. In the case of carpet, which is mainly a North American business, uh, he was pretty positive in terms of how he expected demand to grow in future. But he also recognised the fact that historically we've had a very positive bias towards that market, which has seldom been justified. So again, we may be hoping rather than... Um, than actually uh, being objective about whether the, the growth is going to be there. In the case of industrial filaments, it's a sort of different story. Uh, in, industrial filaments are any type of fibre product which has some type of technical performance aspect. For example, tire cord or airbags or sewing threads for industrial applications. And here Will s suggested that, um, that the market was, was very good, was expected to remain very good, uh, particularly because nylon has a lot of performance attributes which are difficult to replicate using other materials and that because the supply demand situation was was relatively balanced that there was both 
a good volume demand expected, but also reasonable profitability. He, as a sort of word of warning there, it was really all around the, um, the reliance of the sector on the automotive industry. I mean, obviously, tire cord, uh, airbags, and so on, uh, has a very heavy automotive dependency. And with, with a lot of change coming to the global automotive industry, self-driving cars, electric vehicles, uh, Uber, uh, the decline of diesel and so on, that actually, although the industrial filament sector looked very good, um, it was clearly very dependent on the future success of automotive. Day two, we had the second paper from Will Chapman. He was talking about the apparel market and pointed out that, that despite being somewhat out of favour from the suppliers, that, uh, that actually textile is a very, very significant consumer of nylon products. And that that maybe the, uh, the the choice of the nylon suppliers to to put less emphasis or less support behind textiles was a mistake. He pointed out really that there's plenty of value in nylon textile, but the fact that margins historically have been low is mainly related to overcapacity and overcompetition rather than a fundamental lack of value in the product itself. He mentioned that nylon is increasingly becoming a component in uh, textile products, i.e. it's not pure nylon which is used in uh, apparel or uh, home textiles or so on, but this tends to be nylon mixed in with other materials which are typically cheaper, therefore imbibing some of the, the properties that you want from nylon but at a lower cost, and, and that therefore this was another way where nylon would continue to be used in this even uh, though it's a relatively expensive product. That theme was followed by Paola Cabani from Radici, and she talked about the nylon textile market in Europe. Many of the same uh, themes as well identified about the continued value and strength of that business. Uh, but she also talked a lot about higher performance, you know, sophisticated consumers, um, ways in which textiles and garments can help uh, health and comfort. Uh, and, and what really struck me was, was that these things are, are all kind of very... Uh, performance related, maybe not not in the same way as tire cord, but uh, definitely characteristics of the fibres themselves, and, and they all spoke to me of money. You know, these these are advanced concepts dealing with problems which are in, in the kind of advanced economies, and therefore uh, there's there's a lot of there should still be a lot of interest in the textile area from the nylon producers, uh, even if it happens to be value rather than volume related. With a change of tack at that point when Crystal Chang, our director for Nylon in Asia, based in Taiwan, she came and gave us an update on the China situation. Several years ago, we identified a massive wave of investment coming into China, and, and it's going to raise the question of what effect this would have on the rest of the world. Since then, there's been some criticism of the PCI Woodmac opinion around the tsunami of capacity as to whether it really appeared or not and whether we were right in our projections and Crystal's point was that although not as many projects had been built and that some of them were coming later and therefore the tsunami was not as large as we had originally predicted it was still big enough to have most of the effects which we had predicted on the rest of the, the world i.e. overcapacity, crushing margins and, um, and forcing rationalisation of some assets elsewhere. She also identified the role which Sinopec plays in the nylon industry now, Sinopec being owned by the Chinese government, and that many of the things which Sinopec are trying to do in China are really related to the development of the Chinese economy 
as opposed to any particular interest in the nylon business and that this makes it very difficult to compete with companies like Sinopec. The next paper was from uh, Quentin de Cavallo, he's our director of nylon um, at Wood Mackenzie and he was specifically looking at the use of nylon into engineering plastics. He gave a very um, wide-ranging paper looking at how the market is structured in terms of its integration and the changing nature of the supply base um, and and you know his conclusion at the end was it, was it was basically a very complex and lengthy supply chain with a lot of products which were highly specified specifically into the automotive industry and that this gave nylon a very good protection against substitution by other materials Next up was Peter Brown from Solvay, and he talked about 3D printing, which is an application which is really in its infancy now. There are many different materials you can use to, to print things in three dimensions. Nylon happens to be one of the plastic materials which is favoured. And, and Peter really had a kind of call to arms to the industry about getting involved with 3D printing and forming a united front. Um, clearly, if nylon wants to be you know, the preferred solution for 3D printing, then it would be useful if the industry acted together and treated it as a team game. Following him was Peter Kelly from uh, LMC Automotive, who are our partners who provide most of our automotive data and information. And uh, Pete gave a really kind of philosophical paper about the future of automotive, particularly around autonomous cars and um, electric cars or hybrids and, and what this may all look like. I, I found it personally very interesting because uh, for me, the cars are, are sort of two different things. It really represents two different kinds of me. On the one hand, it is a way of getting from A to B. And on the other hand, it's a sort of fashion statement. It's freedom and excitement and so on. And, and really... For me, things like autonomous cars are, uh, I, don't, I don't see the natural market for it because if I just like to get from A to B without having to drive myself, I would use a bus or a taxi or something. Um, and for me, cars are, are much more around the, the, the freedom and the control aspect. So I, I, I was left feeling that this may be a lot of technology which is actually looking for a home, but also with the feeling that, um, that I may not be representative of the rest of the world. The final paper was from Alfonso Garces and Fred Dupont, and he really talked about if Pete's question was, does anybody want a car in future? Uh, Alfonso's was, well, let's assume they do want a car, what kind of car would that be? And uh, he talked a lot about the, the challenges which the automotive sector are facing in terms of meeting future emission standards, uh, looking to lightweight products and reduce um, the the weight of, of uh, the vehicle in order that it consumes less hydrocarbon or, or power to get it to where it needs to be. Um, he identified a number of different technologies which basically if you kind of add them together would get us a long way to meeting these emission targets without the, the massive revolutionary change being talked about elsewhere, for example, you know, electric vehicles or methanol or hydrogen cars or so on. Um, and, and I thought Alfonso did a very good job of, of pointing out that although the challenges are severe, current technology would get you a long way to achieving what's needed already. So finally wrapping it up, I mean, what was my overall conclusion from from the uh, the symposium? There was definitely a, a, an us and them thing between the upstream and the downstream. That's been common for many years now. 
upstream being raw materials, chemicals, polymers, people downstream being fibres, films, plastics, people. Um, and, and there's clearly a bit of a kind of disconnect between the expectations. The upstream expect the downstream to shift ever-increasing amounts of material at high prices and good margins, where the downstream expects the upstream to provide reliable supply, uh, high quality and cost-competitive materials. But but there wasn't a whole lot of looking holistically at the entire industry. In the last three or four years, the power has been with the downstream and the upstream have suffered. Uh, it was clear at the event in March this year that that is now moving back towards the power being with the upstream and the downstream who are going to have to deal with higher prices and a more firm supplier base. Thank you very much.